Good morning. Welcome to Calvary. My name is Tom Shirk, and I'm glad to meet you. If we haven't met, let's do so after the service. I'd be happy to know you were here today and um, meet somebody new. Uh, we're studying the Bible this morning, so if you have a Bible, let's open together to the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book, and there's a table of contents if you need one, and in front of you is a white book. It's a paperback edition of the Bible with really small print, and you are welcome, if you don't have a Bible, to take that with you and uh, make it yours. We commit to studying the Bible together as a church because we really believe that the Bible is the most authoritative book on how to live in a way that pleases God and makes the most sense out of life. Let me say that again. Reading the Bible, we think, is the way to learn how to live a life that pleases God and makes the most sense out of life. Because the Bible addresses everything that we face, doesn't name every specific thing, but all of the general complexities of life and blessings of life and challenges of life are answered in the truths of the Bible. So that's why the Bible actually says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to actually penetrate the very soul of you and me to get to us and what we're thinking and our intentions. The Bible can pierce into that kind of a level to the very depths of our soul. And all the Scripture is profitable for teaching and training and correction when we need correction and um, sort of reproving us to show us the right way that will please God. And that's why the Bible says in the New Testament, we should all study to show ourselves approved unto God. Like study hard so that you will live a life that God says, way to go. And in the Old Testament, it says that uh, the person who trusts in God and rests upon him, meditates on the scriptures day and night. And the result of meditating on the scriptures day and night is you become like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. And whatever you do prospers and your leaf doesn't wither. So you don't want withering leaves. You, you want a life that's strong. And the answer to that is in the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, let's open to the book of Acts. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, and it records the unfolding of everything that happened after Jesus died and rose again. And what difference does that make? There are a group of people who believe that Jesus actually did die, went to the cross, was buried, and then rose again. And after he died and rose again, he appeared to his disciples and taught them many things for about a period of 40 days. These are the opening verses of Acts chapter 1. And then he gave them a mission to be on. And by extension, the mission he put his followers on, it, it extends to every subsequent follower that could be you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the mission we're going to look at today is for you. I read an illustration, a, a statement by a man by the name of Leith Anderson. Leith Anderson is the president 
of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he wrote an interesting observation. He said, preachers have sometimes fantasized that when they get to heaven, they're going to line up and ask the first century apostles what it was like when the church was getting started and God was doing such great things to advance the gospel. He says, I have a different fantasy. I have a fantasy of imagining Peter and Paul and Andrew and James and other apostles lining up to ask us, what was it like to be part of the church in the beginning of the 21st century when God was doing such great things around the world? And what was it like and what was your part in it? You got an answer? You got a, Peter may come up to you and say, hey, what was it like to live in Boulder, Colorado in 2020? Mm-hmm. That's our part. What God did in the extension of his church in Acts chapter 1 is our church. This is our day. Part of the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts is because Acts be, uh, records the founding of his church. We're going to look at how that uh, unfolded through the first century. But it's by application a look at ourselves and say we are a part of the church. We exist in this day. And the things that are told to the early church um, have some application to us. So maybe you're one of those people, oh, if we could just get back to what the early church was like. Eh, maybe not. <clears throat> the early church had its problems. It was challenging because they didn't have what you hold in your hand right now. What you're holding in your hand, all of the collective wisdom of the apostles in one written book, they didn't have that. They had the apostles there, and they saw miraculous things being done. But this thing that you have right here far exceeds what most of them could have possibly dreamt about having in that moment. And so um, this is our day as the church. So let's learn what we can from the book of Acts. I'm going to use this technology, God willing, um, to help us look at this. And I want you to look with me at verse 6. Verse 6, after Jesus had said, I I want you to go to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In verse 6, we're told that when the disciples had come together, they, they came together to meet with Jesus who was there in front of them, according to uh, verse 4 and 5. And they said, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? You have to imagine, let's try to put ourselves back in the zone of the first century. Jesus died. Everybody's crushed. Jesus is in the tomb for three days. Despair. Jesus is raised from the dead. It's like, I don't believe it. Really? And for 40 days, he was showing up, making himself known to them, actually letting them touch his hands and saying, I am alive. And now this episode here in Acts chapter 1 records his last words to his disciples before he 
returns to where he was, to heaven. And they say what probably their hopes all along in his ministry were, you're going to kick Rome out of Israel, aren't you? Like, you're going to get Israel back on track. And he said, no, we're not fighting against Rome. We're not fighting even against uh, the religious leaders of our day. If we were, if our kingdom was of this world, we would fight. But our kingdom's not of this world, so we're not going to fight. And, but now you're, you're resurrected. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There's two things I want you to see here in verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I wonder why Jesus didn't say, my Father. I don't wonder. I think I know. I actually think he didn't say my father because he wants them to know he's their father. It's the father of us. And he brings the disciples in and doesn't say my father. He says it's like our father, which is how he taught us to pray. Everybody, our father who art in heaven. Yeah. The father. He's your father. We're part of the family. He's on a mission. He's doing his thing. The Father has this planned. And it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And what he means to say is, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to Israel and is the kingdom of David going to come back and are there going to be new kings? Is Jesus going to be the king and is everything going to be set right in Israel? Don't worry about that. What you need to know is if you don't know what's going to happen to Israel in this time, here's what you absolutely can know. The Father has this. He's got everything in control. And he holds all things. He's controlling all things. He has fixed the future of the nation Israel by his own authority in his time. What's the application for you in 2020 sitting in this seat wondering if you should keep listening? Nothing happens outside of God's control. He fixes the authority of things. You say, well, you don't know what's happened in my life. I know I don't. But God does. And he has a timing for Israel in his authority and he's going to carry it out. Nothing is outside of his control and you don't have to worry because nothing happens by chance. Now that's going to be a theme that goes through all of the book of Acts that God is sovereignly working out. You're going to hear it again and again that men do these things but God is doing his thing. That people choose to act in this way but God is sovereignly working here we probably won't have time to look at the very end of chapter 1 this morning because I just don't think we're going to get to it. But it in of itself is an example of God sovereignly working to replace Judas who had betrayed Jesus with another disciple or apostle who's going to take his place. And the means by which he takes the place of Judas is prayer, compliance with the biblical scriptures, he qualifies, and then they cast lots. 
You make a lot of decisions by casting lots. In fact, we don't do it anymore. It's the very last time it happens in the Bible. Because in chapter 2, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit guides us and leads us in all truth. But in chapter 1, they pray, and they set their eyes on this replacement, Matthias, and, and they cast lots, and it's between one or two, and the lot falls. What's that? That's God working all things out. Because I want you to know, before we go any further, that it's not for you to know the times or season that God is fixed by his own authority. He's got it in control. He has you in control. Should we quit now? Is that good enough? You, do you believe that? He has that in his control? All right, then we can quit. Verse 8. Let's read verse 8 together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the marching order from Jesus to his disciples. And they will, in the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfill this. This is still for us a marching order in 2020 for Calvary Bible Church and every follower of Jesus that I think the words of Jesus would say similarly to us. You're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in all the world. Now they are waiting for this coming that we talked about last week, the promise of the Holy Spirit who's going to come upon the disciples. That's next Sunday. So don't miss that. It's forward-looking. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that power that you're going to receive by the Holy Spirit is an indwelling presence of God. And the word power is really the Greek word dynamis, dynamus, which sounds like, yeah, same idea, like explosive power. It's like latent power that you will receive power internally by the power of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Now, they're waiting for the first arrival of the Spirit in this measure that's going to happen next week in Pentecost chapter 2. But you know, if you are a follower of Jesus, we learn later in the Bible that subsequently, when you trust in Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you instantaneously. There's not a second work of grace for awaiting of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that next week. But if you know Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. He lives inside of you. You're sealed by Him. The Bible uses the word baptized, where you're sort of immersed in the Holy Spirit. He dwells inside of you, and He fills your life, and you can thwart His influence in your life. If you disobey, if we disobey Him, we can thwart Him in us. But He's in the believer's life. And the power of the Holy Spirit in you is to do what? It's right here. You will be my witnesses. You have to see the connection here. The power of the Spirit is to enable witness. To, to be able to be one who can tell what God has done. You're going to be empowered by the presence of the Spirit to show and tell what God has done. Now let's think about this. What does a witness do? A witness tells the truth. 
You tell what you saw. In order to be a witness, you have to have seen something. You can't go to court and be a, oh, well, I think I, someone told me that, you know, you could, you could be there. But it's called hearsay, and you're not really a credible expert witness to do that. You're just retelling a story that you have little knowledge about, and it's not very credible in a court of law. But if you are an eyewitness, and you see something happen, you can tell the truth about it. That's what a witness does. It comes from the Greek word martus, M-A-R-T-U-S, transliterated with English letters. Martus. Martus. What does that sound like? It sounds like martyr because it comes from the same word. A truth teller who says, I can tell nothing but the truth, so help me God. With courage is willing to say, no, that's the truth, and I don't care if you kill me. It doesn't change the truth. And that's what the early church apostles became the martyrs of the church because they said, here I stand, I can do no other. This is actually the truth. I'm not going to say it's not the truth. It is the truth, so help me God. And they killed most of the followers, which is why in the second century, a theologian by the name of Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When they shed their blood, people said, are you kidding me? You would die for that message? I got to look at that message. And the church grew. And we're going to see martyrs as we look through the early New Testament story. You're a witness. Now, let's just say for a second, you are witnesses to what? Oh, you're my witnesses. Essentially, what Jesus is saying, you're going to be witness to me in the world. So let's be sure that we all know what is the content of the message that the witnesses are making. It is of Jesus that he is the Son of God, that he took on flesh, that he was born into the world, that he went to the cross and died on behalf of sinners, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he was seen by many witnesses, that he then ascended into heaven, and that he's coming back, and that by believing in him, you can have life in his name. Everybody get that? You should write that down. Okay, Jesus was God. He came in the flesh. He lived a life here. He went to the cross. He died on behalf of sinners. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he's coming back. And if you believe on his name, you can have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. That's the message. That's the gospel. That's what we're witnesses to. We have to be able to say, that's what happened with Jesus. I don't believe that. Okay. That's the message. That's the good news. I don't believe it. I don't care. It's still true. It still happened. It's real. And that's what Jesus did. I mean, there always were people saying, I don't believe it. We're going to see some today, a little bit later. But your job isn't to make them believe. Your job is to tell the message through the power of the Spirit to say, I, I believe this is who Jesus is. He, he really is that. And I just want to tell you the truth as I know it. You say, well, okay, the Bible says that some of the apostles, uh, for First John chapter 1 begins this way, that which we heard from the beginning, which we have seen with our 
eyes, which we have heard with our ears, which we looked at and we touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, the life which was made manifest, for we have seen it, we have uh, observed it, we testify about it and proclaim to you. This is the way 1 John begins. What's he saying? I was there. I saw it. I handled it. I, I touched Jesus with my own hands. That's what I'm telling you. Now, none of us in this room can say that. We have not seen the resurrected Jesus. So we can't say, I, I know he really did rise from the dead. I saw him. No. We, we didn't see that. You can see the effects of that, and you can testify of the effects of that being true in your own life. Okay, some of you are looking at me a little confused. Keep your finger here. Turn left in your Bible, one book, to Gospel of John, chapter 9. Gospel of John, chapter 9. And let me show you that you, um, you do not have to be an eyewitness to talk about the experience of Jesus. You can't see him as the resurrected Jesus, but you can say, I have firsthand experience, and I know this to be true. I have firsthand experience of my life being affected by Jesus, and I know, for example, that my sins are forgiven. I know he's in my heart. I know he's forgiven me. I know I have eternal life. You can say that, but you can't really say, I saw the resurrected Jesus in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Let me show you what a first-hand witness will do. John chapter 9, verse 1, is a story about Jesus passing uh, through and seeing a man who was born blind, and he heals him, and he sends him to a pool of Siloam, which is a place after he put mud and spit on his eye, and he washes his eyes, and suddenly he can see. And verse 8 says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, yep, it is he. But others said, nope, somebody just like him. But it's not him. And he kept saying, it's me. You can imagine that scene. That's, that, you weren't yet. No, really, it's me. That's a firsthand witness. Um, well, how were your eyes made open? He said, the man called Jesus, put mud on my eyes, anointed me, and said, go wash. And so I went and washed, and I received my sight. Well, the Pharisees weren't having any of it, and so they went and grabbed his parents, and they pulled his parents in, and they asked his parents, is this your son, and can you tell us how he is today seeing? Their answer was, he's of age, why don't you ask him? So a second time, they asked him, verse 24, and called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. They're talking about Jesus. Jesus is a sinner. They hated Jesus. They would never be believing, no matter what. So you give glory to God. And the man answered in verse 25 and said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, whereas I was blind, now I see. That's a witness. That's what I know. I don't know everything. 
I don't know everything about Jesus, but the one thing I absolutely, indisputably do know is yesterday I was blind, today I can see. Now that's what you can do. You can't say everything that there is to know about Jesus, but the one thing you can say, if it's true of you, if it's true of you, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, and the Savior rescued me. He forgave me. I know my sins are forgiven. I know if I died tomorrow, I would go to heaven. I know that. We can say that. First hand, I know the effects of Jesus as Savior. And that's what it means to be a witness, to tell the truth. To say, this is what I know for sure. Well, that's your truth. Okay. But it is true. Jesus did this to me. And so what happens in the rest of the New Testament is that the apostles say, this is the way we ought to live our life. Our whole mission in life, because we're a part of this church and we've come to know Jesus, is to be the kind of people who are involved in this kind of mission. Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, making the world right with himself. It's not right because of sin, but Jesus came into the world to make the world right with him, um, not counting their trespasses against them, he forgives them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We communicate with people, this is the message, you can be reconciled to God through faith. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. And God's making his appeal through us to the world. That's in the heart of God. He wants the world to know who he is, and we're the ones who get to do it. The ministry of reconciliation, bringing people to see that God wants to love them deeply and he has loved them deeply. And there's nothing God's going to do for anybody greater than the one thing that he's already done is to give his son. He'll do many other things also, but the greatest thing he could ever do was to send his son into the world. So I want you to be witness to me. I am the son of God. I did come into the world to die for sinners. I was crucified, buried. I'm raised. I'm ascended into heaven. I'm coming again. Be my witnesses through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that he said, you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witness. But he says several other things in that text. So back to verse 8. I don't want you to miss this, that there are four spheres here, zones. I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's like everywhere. Now, I have a dear friend who's a member of our church, Eric Swanson, who gave me a grid that helps me to understand why these four spheres um, are listed here. And I want to share this grid with you because it will help us in 2020 think about how we live out being witnesses through the power of the Spirit in every place. Before I do that, let me share this. This becomes something of an outline for the rest of the book so that in chapters 1 through 7 in Acts, basically you're in Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 11 or 12 or so, you are in Judea and Samaria. And then in roughly 12 or 13 to chapter 28, you have Paul the Apostle going to all the ends of the earth to Rome. And if in his day you got to Rome, you got to the world. 
eventually. So that's sort of the flow of the book. But when this group was gathered together, they were predominantly what kind of people? They were Jews in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem because this is where this was happening. But what do you, and Judea, by the way, is sort of the country of, in which Jerusalem is. And then north of Judea was Samaria. And what do you know about the Samaritans? Samaritans were half-Jews, Jews who had abandoned um, over history their allegiance to the sacred scriptures and the parameters of Jewish law and had intermarried with other ethnic groups. So Samaritans were Jews who married others from different countries and nationalities and ethnic groups. As a result of that, if you can believe it, there was great ethnic racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. They wouldn't have a meal together. Wouldn't you wish over all these years we could have ascended beyond racial prejudice? We haven't. It's our world. We see it. Turns our stomach. It's here. And then beyond Samaria is the whole world, as I said, that would be to Rome. Here's a chart I want to give you to help you see it. Um, my, my friend put these two axes together. One is on geography, being close and distant, and then in culture, being similar or being different. Now, I want you to think of those four places. I want you to go into all the world and be witnesses for me in Jerusalem. What box does that go in? That goes right here, Jerusalem, because it's close culturally and it's close in proximity to where it is. It's right there, Jerusalem. And then Judea is a little bit further away but it's in the same culture. They're Jews. And if you wanted to go to Samaria, then you would have to go to some place that was fairly close, just a little bit north, but it's culturally different. And then if you wanted to go someplace that was far away and culturally very different, then you'd go to the world. And what you have here is sort of a picture of who's, who's like me, who's near me, who's, not, who's like me but a little bit further away, who's not like the way I think of life, and they're far away. See that? What, what do you derive from this? I derive from this that God has an interest in all the world. And he's sending his disciples out to be people who can touch all the world. But let's think about it for 2020 for you. Who's this? This is the person who is across the street from you. Or across the cubicle, across the office. 
there at the gym with you. you. You are there with them. This is the person in your life to whom God is saying to you, I want you to be my witness through the power of the Holy Spirit to the person who is in your Jerusalem who's really right across the street. And I hope that one of the things that you'll do today in your little notebook that you're taking notes in is that you'll make a one, two, three for the names of three people that you're saying, they're in my sphere right now. And I want to be witnesses to them now. Now, if we were to go outside of your circle from being across the street and go to your Judea, where would that be? Well, that might be across the, I won't write it all out, but it may be across the country. Or Nebraska. Ah, that might be culturally different. I don't know. No, you get it. Sorry. Maybe just someone who's similar, but a little bit further away. And if you were going to go to Samaria, think about that. We, we use words like that would be across the... Across the tracks. They don't live quite the same way. They're, you know, I'm climbing up if I cross the tracks to live in their neighborhood. Or they live in a different sphere. And if I wanted to go to the world, it would be across the seas. And that's what we do. We send people to the ends of the world. Why do I paint that picture? When Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. He is mapping out a strategy to say, I love the world. And there's no one outside my love. Even if they don't live near you or they're not culturally like you or there's some differences, Christ came for the world. And we have got to blow up any sense of cultural, um, ethnic, racial tension that would say we wouldn't share the love of God in any place. Because the mission that Jesus is laying out here is for all the world to know who he really is. And you have the skill set to do just that. Any questions? Okay. We have to hurry. When Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He was lifted up, which is a physical sphere. A cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up. Let's just stop there for a minute. What do you think he's trying to emphasize? Jesus physically, literally ascended into heaven. You say, wow, that's weird. Yeah. It is a miraculous work that God did, and Jesus had to ascend to where he was before he became incarnate in order to send the Holy Spirit. But what you see described here in explicit language several times by Luke is he went up, he went up, he went up, he went. He descended, he ascended into heaven right in front of their very eyes and they all saw it. 
And then he said, this Jesus who was taken up from you, everybody, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Luke is explicitly saying Jesus is going to heaven. And that's his rightful place because he is the son of God. But he's coming again. So he came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he was raised, he showed up to his disciples and he ascended into heaven. And what's the next thing going to happen? I'm going to come again. And I think what Jesus, what, what's happening here is this suddenly becomes the motivation for being witnesses is Jesus Christ is coming back and how are we going to live between now and then? Between now and the second coming, what's our job? Our job is to make Jesus known in the world, to tell others about him in every opportunity that we have, to be confident witnesses. And I, I want to just repeat, it may not be that when you are a witness, people respond. There are a lot of people who never responded. We saw them in John chapter 9. Um, Kent Hughes tells the story of George Whitfield, who in the 1700s got people out of bed at 5 a.m. to hear him preach in a church. Thousands of people would come to church at 5 a.m. in Edinburgh, Scotland. Man! Our service starts at 9.05 and 11.35. Not really, but you know what I'm saying? Five o'clock they're going. So there was a guy who was on his way to church to hear Whitfield preach. And on his way he met David Hume. David Hume is a Scottish philosopher and a known skeptic. And he asked Hume on the way to church, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. To which Hume said, I do not, but he does. And he hung around the message. A lot of people in our life who do not. I have no interest. But you just wait and hang around and hang around and hang around. And suddenly... By the power of the Spirit, which is the only way anybody comes to Jesus, the message goes, Bling. wait, Jesus is the Son of God? He really did die for sinners? Man, I'm a, I feel guilty. He'll forgive me. That's the message of the gospel. Not everybody gets it the first time through. Let me show it to you quickly. In our text... Uh, in verse 12, it says this. Then they returned to Jerusalem after Jesus ascended to heaven uh, from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath-day journey away. When they entered the upper room, uh, they were there, and then all 11 disciples are named. Peter, uh, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphas, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, he's gone now. Verse 14, and all of these were with one accord, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, you could just say for a minute, they know that they're supposed to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, but what do they do to occupy themselves waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit? Everybody? They pray. So why should they pray? Jesus said, promise is going to happen. You always pray, no matter what, especially while you're waiting. We pray, Lord, help us not to lose faith while we're waiting for the promise that you gave us. 
And so we're, we're, they're praying there. And those 11, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Who's that? Who's the his? It's Jesus' brothers. The brothers of Mary and Joseph, subsequent to the divine conception of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had other children. And there are four that were known to us by the name of a Joseph and a Judas and a Simon and James. Church history said there were four of them. Two of them, James and Judas, wrote two of our New Testament books, the Epistle of James and Jude. But in John chapter 7, verse 5, what we learn about the brothers of Jesus is they did not believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in him. So Jesus is doing all these miracles and he's teaching and he's got four brothers and they don't believe in him. I talk about some sibling rivalry. Jesus, you know, pretty much demonstrating who he is and what he can do. And the brothers say, I don't, I don't want it. Until he dies and rises again. And what they were unwilling to believe in life, in the face of the death of Jesus, they came to believe. Hang around long enough and the light goes on. And I just want to say to you, sometimes it takes death to get your attention to say, Jesus is who he says he is. And there's people in your world, your sphere of influence, who, who for them, a despairing event will be the very thing that will convince them that this message is true. And you're called to testify about it. I wish I had time to do so much more. But maybe that's enough for us this morning just to say, this, this mission of the church, being on mission as witnesses, is ours today. Where's God going to send us until, until we take this message to all the world that God wants to share the message with? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the privilege of being able to think about these things, our role as witnesses to a message that's true and is um, life-changing. And I thank you that you changed so many lives in the first century, and you've changed many of our lives by your grace and truth. And so now I pray that you will lead us as your people to listen carefully to this, to believe you, to wait and be under the influence of your Holy Spirit, and to look for places that we can tell this good message to those who will hear it. Lord, we pray you'll keep advancing your church for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.